0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 20th, 2010. Oh, man. Feeling a little overwhelmed at the moment. Trying to catch up on a few things and move a few things forward. I know that's vague, Well, it was vague on purpose, so there. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, today is Thursday, but we're going to do Friday light on Thursday. So we're doing Thursday light. Does that, y'all, yeah, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, it's best if you don't ask questions because it doesn't make any sense. I wish I could make sense of it, but let's just say that, um, you know, my schedule is uh, such that I needed to move a few things around. So I've got a fantastic lecture uh, today for you. And this is part one of a two-part lecture uh, given by uh, D.A. Carson on the reliability of the New Testament. This is critical stuff. Why? Because people like Bart Ehrman and the Emergence are running around talking about how the Bible isn't reliable. You can't trust it. Therefore, you must instead trust in your feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Yeah, I know you were really excited about me singing to you today. And for those of you whose ears are bleeding, I apologize. Um nothing we can do about that. I should have warned you, but I didn't, so you'll just have to cope. So so, uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Don Carson, uh, part one on his two-part lecture series on the reliability of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. Here is D.A. Carson.
1: Now, my brief is... uh this morning uh, to talk about the reliability and relevance of the Bible especially the New Testament and um, what I want to do is to sweep through six broad areas um, the subject has now become so convoluted that um, one is immediately into, into not only technical little bits of evidence but on but also into large conceptualities and uh, epistemology and and things of that that sort. So what I want to do is survey the whole, and then the Q&A can take us in more concrete um, directions, if you like. So I want to begin, then, in the first instance, with a survey of major conceptions and misconceptions that have to do with this subject. A survey of major conceptions and misconceptions that have to do with this subject. Number one, revelation the nature of revelation. Historically, there are really only three ways that people have spoken of coming to know God. Now, of course, they, they come up in a, an array of configurations, but essentially three ways. One, mysticism. That is, people claim to know God out of some sort of direct knowledge of him. And many world religions have primarily mystical branches. Uh, Two, reason. That is, they think that they can reason their way to God. And number three, revelation. That is, God discloses himself. Now, if you opt for the third, this does not mean that there is any place for reason as you think about revelation, It doesn't mean that there is no place for personal intimacy or knowledge of God, some form of mysticism, because God has disclosed himself. But nevertheless, the Christian claim, and in this Christianity stands with some other world religions, the Christian claim is that God has actually disclosed himself, which means that we are required then to talk about, to think about the nature of the revelation. So strictly speaking, then, Christians who are um, informed about these matters do not want to begin quite with the Bible. They want to begin with God. And the question of how God has disclosed himself. The Christian claim is that God has disclosed himself not only in events, but also in words, and supremely in the person of his own dear son. So, one does not want to raise the words above either the sun or the events. Does one want to raise the words above, let us say, the exodus, the event itself, or the death and resurrection of Christ, or the incarnation? In fact, the whole thing coheres. And and that's why if you focus too narrowly on the reliability and relevance of the Bible without considering the whole and beginning with God, things are very rapidly distorted and, um, and and one is a little off track, do you, do you see? And yet, because we are finite and we can only talk about one thing at a time, uh, at least I can only talk about one thing at a time, even though I talk very fast, um, yet, yet it is it is therefore possible to talk about one element in this revelatory act of God, Um while still having to say again and again and again with footnotes or with uh, excursuses, with, with comments, that, that, that still the focus is not the Bible. As important as the Bible is, the focus is God himself. Number two, the mediated nature of Scripture, the mediated nature of the Bible. There are some religions that treat their putative scriptures as if dropped holus bolus from heaven. Islam is very much like that. Now, in all fairness, the best text critics of the Muslim Quran argue very strongly, although this would be denied by many conservative Islamic scholars, they argue very strongly that, in fact, there was a convoluted and complicated textual tradition amongst the manuscripts of the Kuchan until a decree came along that destroyed all of the antecedent ones and established one dominant textual tradition, which is then claimed to come directly from God. Now, uh, in fact, some earlier manuscripts have escaped. But this is really quite different from the Christian claim. Read the Quran with its shurahs, its various chapters, organized in descending length and so on. And you, you, you were in another world entirely. One of the things you, you feel about the Bible is how human the whole thing is. Now, there are parts of the Bible which are claimed to be given by dictation. But certainly not all of it, not even most of it. For example, there are parts of Daniel where Daniel has received something virtually by dictation from God himself, such that Daniel himself claims he doesn't know what it means. In fact, he asks God then what it does mean. And God says, none of your business. It's for a later generation. Just make sure you get the transcription right. Now, I understand that. I mean, for a while I had a very competent um, secretary, um, the names have changed at Trinity. They're no longer secretaries. They're now administrative assistants. And um, my current administrative assistant is theologically trained. He's, he's a very capable chap, so he, he's got my vocabulary down more or less. But my previous one, who was a very capable woman in many respects, had no theological training. So, so, so because I dictate so many, many letters. Um, uh, even dictate some emails. As, as fast as I can type, I can dictate even faster. Uh, and, and so all kinds of things went, went through her hands that were of a theological sort, a project I was working on, answering a pastor somewhere and so on. And, and, and so she was hearing all kinds of words that she had never heard of before. In fact, in the secretarial pool, I found out sometime later, there was a joke going around about Carson's word for the day. And she had one every day that we were both on campus together for a year and a half. So so I understand that secretaries can put stuff down and it somehow comes through their ears and goes out their fingers into the computer without having a clue what's being said, you see. And if they're really good, they still spell right and so forth. She was a very capable woman. And, And there is some part of the Bible, then, that is given by dictation where dear old Daniel himself admits he doesn't have a clue. Jeremiah receives some words from the Lord, dictates them verbatim then to to, to his uh, secretary, Baruch. And then in the opposition of the day, the the bad guys come along, take the manuscript, rip it up, and throw it in the fireplace. Now, if you're reading this, you're supposed to laugh. The reason why you're supposed to laugh, of course, is because God dictated it. Did he forget what he said? Don't you think he's capable of giving it to Jeremiah round two? Did you see? So there are parts of the Bible that are, are, are generated like that, but there are many parts of the Bible where clearly the human authors are speaking out of their own deeply felt experiences, emotions, understanding of history, and so on. Now, for all kinds of reasons, we still believe that God has so superintended what was written that what was written was simultaneously their perception, their experiences, their um, slant on things. Yet, at the same time, nothing less than what God wanted to be written all the way down to the very words themselves. So we speak of this as God's word as well as Isaiah's word or Luke's word or whatever, but when, when Paul comes in in the evening and he's had a long day, and he's getting ready for bed, um, it, it doesn't happen this way. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, not yet, not yet. Get your quill pen out. Oh, okay, God. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, take the, down the following. Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas, to the church, to the church, which is at Philippi, which is at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, with the bishops and deacons. It just isn't. All you have to do is read the book and you discover that it is full of thanksgiving for things that the Philippian church has given. When David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall want nothing. That is what he thinks. That is his experience. In other words, there's a huge human dimension in, in, in Holy Scripture. Not only so, it it comes across in the diversity of literary genres. (laughs) Holy Scripture is, is not a book of systematic theology. It embraces a theology, all right, which can be systematized. Don't misunderstand me. But it is not cast that way. Read any systematic theology that you like, and it feels very different from the diversity of Scripture with its poetry and its prose, its lament, its genealogies, its history. It's apocalyptic, it's letters, on and on and on, these various literary forms, Proverbs, and all of these different literary forms have their own different ways of making rhetorical appeals. They have to be read and interpreted somewhat differently. It's a very human sort of book. Moreover, because because these different human authors are genuinely speaking out of their experience in vocabulary, the Greek style of Luke is not quite the same as the Greek style of John. If I dictate letters to my former secretary, and then I dictate letters to my current administrative assistant, in fact, the style is boringly similar in the two cases. Because they're just putting down my words. But in the case of John and Luke, the the, 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 the style, the vocabulary, the sentence structure, really quite different. You you can tell this even when you read the the English Bible translations, can't you? And that's because even though we insist, for reasons still to be probed, that this is nothing less than the Word of God, it is not all in a kind of drop-down-from-heaven-on-golden-tablets-in-the-Mormon-tradition variety. It is God mediating by his Spirit in such a way that there is a human dimension to Scripture. This also comes out even in the fact that there is a text-critical tradition. That is, before the age of the printing press, before the age of the printing press, manuscripts had to be copied by hand. And so some people have uh, noticed that, um, that, that these manuscripts are not all alike. In fact, no two long manuscripts are ever exactly alike. Until you had the printing press, you couldn't get endless copies of one manuscript repeated exactly the same as all the other ones. And so all of the diversities of these manuscripts generates the discipline generates generates the discipline of textual criticism. That is how you analyze the text and see what 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 reading is is closest to the original. Now I'm going to come back to that a little later with some of Bart Ehrman's stuff and so on. Yet at the level of just understanding the human dimension of Scripture, it, it is important to understand that if God had wanted to preserve the text tradition, so that all manuscripts were exactly the same. Supposing he wanted to do that, what would he have had to have done? He would have had to intervene at the level of supernatural miracle so that people could not make mistakes, even in the copying. All you have to do is, 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 is go home and try to copy out Five chapters of any biblical book, and then get a friend to go through it carefully and correct your mistakes. You, you, you do silly things. You, you do it all the time w- w- without meaning to. Even if you proof your own work, you probably won't catch your own mistakes. I don't catch all my mistakes. I proof something very carefully, then I put it, put it through spell check and find some more, and then I go and read it again and find a few more things where spell check didn't pick up things because it wasn't a spelling mistake. It was some abysmal mistake in syntax or the like. It happens, doesn't it? But God has so superintended in his providence the transmission of all of these manuscripts that there is no doctrine, not even a minor one, that is in any jeopardy whatsoever. The sheer plethora of manuscripts is stunning. We have precisely three copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, all from the Middle Ages, we have 5,000 copies of the Greek Testament of, in whole or part and about 8,000 from early translations, w- w- which means the range of evidence is just vastly more overwhelming than we have for any other ancient book. And, and, and although there may be some dispute about whether a certain doctrine is taught in this passage or not because of some variables in the manuscript. The doctrine itself is not in any jeopardy because it's taught in so many places where there are no variables in the manuscript. Did you, you, you see? And the overwhelming majority of the variations are of such an instrumental or such, a, such an incidental nature that they really affect very little. Now, we'll come back to this one when we consider Bart Ehrman's very influential recent book, Misquoting Jesus. So, one must come to grips with the mediated nature of Scripture. Number three. One must come to grips with the fact that Christianity is a uniquely historical religion. Now, this is really coming back in part through the back door to the point I made at the beginning. God has not disclosed himself in words only, but also in events. Let let me uh, approach this tangentially. Supposing um, you asked um, a devout Buddhist this question. How would he or she reply? Supposing I could prove, you say, supposing I could prove, I have no idea how, but supposing I could prove somehow that Gotama the Buddha never lived, what would be jeopardized in your faith? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Because, in fact, the believability of Buddhism doesn't depend on any claim made about Gotama. It does depend on his teachings and thus their coherence and credibility and attractiveness on all kinds of fronts. It does not depend on any historical claim. Now go to India. Hindus have... Literally, millions of gods. Greeks of the first century had thousands. Contemporary Hindus insist there are millions. So, supposing you could prove somehow, I have no idea how, but supposing you could prove somehow, beyond serious cavil, that Krishna never lived, would you destroy Hinduism? Nah. Go down the street to a Shiva temple instead. Do you you, you see? The structure of Hinduism is such that by the falsification of one God, you you do not destroy the structure of the system in which all of reality is truth and there's a certain system of karma built into moral um, um, accountability and so forth. Now go to Islam. And ask your friendly neighborhood imam this question. Sir, do you believe that Allah, blessed be he, could have given his final revelation to someone other than Muhammad had he chosen to do so? Now, probably the imam will misunderstand you in the first instance and respond somewhat negatively and say, Oh, you don't understand. We believe that God did speak through his prophet Abraham and through his prophet Moses and through his prophet Jesus. But the final revelation came through Muhammad himself. And you reply, uh, well, you know that I'm a Christian and I don't see things exactly that way, but it's not my question. My question is a bit different. My question is, could Allah, had he chosen to do so, have given his final revelation through someone other than Muhammad? And the imam will reply, well, of course, Allah is Allah. He may do what he pleases. He is sovereign. He may give his revelation to whomever he chooses. But we believe that he gave his final revelation to Muhammad. So in that sense, then, Muhammad himself is incidental to Islam. Now, he's not incidental, in fact, because, of course, Muslims believe that he was the conveyor of this final revelation, but, but, but in this derivative sense, he is incidental to Islam. Now come to Christianity. Could God have given his final revelation in someone other than Jesus? The question is almost incoherent, because the revelation is Jesus. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. He is himself the God-Man. And as I tried to show last night, this historical particularity extends to certain crucial and non-negotiable elements in the account, including the resurrection of Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, if the tomb was not really empty if you could show that Christ never really lived, if you could prove, somehow, I'm not quite sure how, but if you could prove beyond reasonable cavil that Jesus never lived or that he never rose from the dead. Biblical Christianity is utterly destroyed without hope of reprieve. It is very important to see that, that the issues are not over a really tight definition of inerrancy, although those things are important. Yet, 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 yet the issue is, is, is more fundamental than that. It, it comes ultimately to whether God has disclosed himself in space-time history in the person and work of Christ to which the scriptures attest. It is a profoundly historical revelation. And because it is an historical revelation, then, then on the one hand there are these witnesses that attest to these events in Scripture, and on the other hand, there are all of these words about the events to help us understand what they mean. So there are words that explain, and yet biblical Christianity is not simply an abstract philosophical system that can be removed from the contingencies of history. It just isn't. And that is going to be foundationally important in any of our attempts to understand what Scripture is about in its reliability and relevance to us today. Number four. This is still under point one, in case you're wondering where we're going. The category of uh, so-called literal interpretation is a slippery one. Many people say, not least the press today, that evangelicals and or fundamentalists believe in literal interpretation. In the press, that is often a form of abuse. Now, even the category literal interpretation is is slippery. It has a long, complex intellectual history. But at the most, um, at the strictest level of what literal means, I don't know anybody. From any place in the theological spectrum who takes a literal interpretation in every respect, it's, 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 not, it's not intellectually possible. When Jesus says, I am the door, no one thinks that he's flat on both sides, turns on hinges, and squeaks with all due respect. No one does. In other words, we recognize that there 's a place for metaphor and simile and d- different genres and so on and, and so the, the dispute then is, is between those who who, who who understand the texts in their most natural sense, granted the understanding of literary genre and the location in history and that comes to mean what is meant by literal if that 's what you mean by literal, then i I want, I want literal interpretation, but at the same time. Um, <laughs> That's not what comes across in the popular press today. Literal has to do with sort of crassly stupid. And, and, and that surely is sort of stacking the deck as we start thinking about these things, isn't it? Moreover, often there is another layer in the debate over what's literal interpretation that has to be probed a wee bit. There are quite a lot of people who want to talk about a kind of metaphorical or or mystical or allegorical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, they can see what it actually says in the most natural reading of that particular literary genre, but they're so uncomfortable with it that, 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 in fact, they want some other kind of interpretation. Maybe an allegorical interpretation. After all, doesn't the Bible itself use the word allegory? Do you remember the famous passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31? The NIV has which things may be taken figuratively. The Greek has hatinastin allegorumena. That is to say, which things are allegorical. Only time the word allegory or its, it's cognates is, is used anywhere in the New Testament. But of course, Even there, one has to be careful. What is meant by various literary tropes in the ancient world isn't always the same as what is meant by literary tropes today. In the ancient world, allegory meant something like to speak another way or to speak a parallel way. That's all it meant. And so it could include a wide variety of, 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 of literary forms. But today, allegory is usually understood to have a more technical definition. Today allegory is, is is usually bound up in most treatments, it's bound up with an interpretation of text such that the interpretive key I should have shut this off, shouldn't I? It's pretty awful when that's only the second time this has ever happened. You can't even claim to be first. I, I, I have a. I, my wife had very, very serious cancer three or four years ago, and up until then, I believe it or not, I actually managed to, to to travel without carrying a cell phone. But part of starting to travel again was to have a cell phone that rings all over the world and and uh, so so she has me on a short leash and only about five or six people have this number so usually when it does go off it's important but still i don't even i i don't want it ringing on these occasions so so i i i beg your i beg your pardon um <coughs> it, it, a- allegory then in in the in the contemporary world means something like Um, An interpretation of a text such that the key to the interpretation, the grid for the interpretation, is outside the text. Thus, for example, Philo in the first century, a rough contemporary with Paul, he he reads the accounts of Genesis and he believes that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are historical figures. But at the same time, he thinks that their real significance, the real meaning, Their meaning in terms of understanding what life is about is that they they actually refer to the three basic principles of a Greek education. Now, with all due respect to Philo, there's no way on God's green earth that you're going to get that interpretation out of Genesis. You just are not. In, In other words, that connection, that way of reading the text is not itself textually determined. Whereas Paul's argument... In Galatians 4 21 to, 20, uh, to 31, is precisely that if you read the account in its salvation historical sequence, in fact, the interpretation that he finds there, the parallels that he finds there, is in fact determined by the text itself. It's a slightly different way of reading it, but it's determined by the text itself, he says. Do you see? Now, that means that when we are wrestling with, uh, with popular questions about the Bible, we sometimes have to take time to explain what things like literal means. Are you one of those Christians who reads the Bible literally? It's a bit like asking, you know, do you wipe your nose in public or... Do you know how to eat at at a table in a polite way? Or are you rude? It's a form of abuse rather than an analysis of, of literary sensitivity. And so sometimes those things have to be unpacked as one deals with these things. Number five. This is still under point one. I've got five and six under point one. All right? Number five. Still dealing with great conceptions and misconceptions. The impact of the Enlightenment. The impact of the Enlightenment. There are many, many scholars who have argued that under the impact of the Enlightenment, for reasons that I'll talk about a little more this afternoon when we consider um, the emerging church movement, under the impact of the Enlightenment, Christians in the West became far too concerned with questions of truth, with questions of proposition, with questions of assertion. Before that, they tend to argue, people read the Bible for edification, or they they read it for moral instruction. But now because of the impact of the Enlightenment, um, people learn to, to ask, yes, but is it true? and then liberals went in one direction and conservatives went in another direction, if they would just stop asking rude questions like that and read it for their own personal benefit, for moral direction, in order to build a world frame of reference, then then we, we could avoid those sorts of nasty divisions amongst us. If this subject interests you a great deal, I strongly recommend that you read a little book by John Woodbridge. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but the book is called Biblical Authority, Biblical Authority, a response to the Rogers McKim proposal. What Woodbridge does in his 250 pages or so is survey a great deal of the primary sources across church history. It's all a book of primary sources. So he's actually reading Irenaeus and he's reading Saint Augustine and so on across church history to see what they have to say about Scripture. So he looks at Augustine's letter eighty-two, I believe the number is, sections three and four, where he's writing to Jerome. So you're 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 back at the end of the fourth century now, long before the Enlightenment, and and. And and Augustine works out how Scripture must be true and without error, or there are serious problems that show up in your epistemology and so on, so on, so on. What Woodbridge is trying to show is that a high view of Scripture's reliability, its truthfulness, its inerrancy, that's all that is really meant by this word inerrancy, its, its truthful reliability is paradigm independent. That is to say, it is independent of any controlling worldview whether it's the enlightenment or it's common sense realism or um, it's it's high medieval epistemological structures or whatever in other words this high view of scripture comes across uh, across the ages again and again and again and again it wasn't invented by the reformation
0: okay i'm going to pause right there we got to pay a few bills and I uh, need to remind you if you want to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at com, Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, and then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, you
1: see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God.
0: Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally.
1: We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable.
0: And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise man plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon.
1: I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule.
0: Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional ten dollars off of cheapo airs already low prices so visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the web banner and book your spring or summer travel today and remember a portion of your purchase at cheapo air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning! There is no warning today. <laughs> I don't know what's gotten into me. Had my face in too many books lately. Ugh, just reading like a madman. Okay, need to remind you all: fighting for the face of Face. <sighs> yes, my brain has been rendered inoperative. I, I just probably should go and take a vacation day or something. <laughs> fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world you can support us financially by visiting our website fighting and when you get there you'll see two yellow buttons one says join our crew the other says donate and uh, when you join our crew you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere six dollars and ninety five cents every month it's Pittance, nothing uh, to fighting for the faith. And when we get to a thousand listeners, by the way, that'll mean that we'll for sure be able to pay our bills every month. We are a little better than seventy percent of the way to our goal. <laughs> if you haven't signed up to join our crew, do so. Anyway, and of course, if you would like to, um, if you would like to fill in the amount as to how much you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the balance of the uh, of D- Don Carson's uh, first uh, in the two part lecture series on the reliability of the New Testament. I love his even handed approach to this. Can't wait till he talks about Bart Ehrman some more. <laughs> anyway, let's continue.
1: It wasn't invented by post Reformation scholastics. It wasn't invention invented by Benjamin Warfield. That was the whole thesis of Ernest Sandine, an historian, for example, who argued that this high view of Scripture really didn't exist before Benjamin Warfield at the end of the 19th century. He invented the whole thing himself, bless his heart. Wasn't he clever? But, but, but in fact, what Woodbridge does in this book is simply document things across the centuries so that, so, so that if you wish to overthrow this, you must understand you're not overthrowing some slightly aberrant theologian at the, the end of the 19th century called, called Warfield. There is 2,000 years of very serious Christian thought from paradigm after paradigm after paradigm trying to work this thing out, do you see? It is important to see that. And um, similarly, um, the the charge that this high view of Scripture is too concerned with propositions and assertions and not enough concerned with the fact that, for example, Jesus is the truth or that there are different uh, literary tropes to which the term inerrancy does not really um, uh, suitably apply. Well, I've I've just finished reviewing a fairly recent book. Uh, It'll appear in RBL. called, But Is It All True? And this is a book of nine essays that that asks this question of the Bible. But is it all true? And these various authors come from various camps. There's there's one evangelical, a philosopher by the name of Stephen Davis, and then these folks come um, from an array of positions across the entire spectrum. But one of the things that interested me about this book when I reviewed it was, was that Most of the authors said something like this. Of course, we all acknowledge that there are some propositions in the Bible, some assertions about which we can debate whether they're true or not. But, of course, the most important thing in the Bible is that Jesus is the truth or or that it is dealing with how to shape a worldview and so on. Not once did I ever read, of course, we all acknowledge that Jesus is the truth. But, of course, there are also lots of propositions in the Bible about which you must decide whether they're true or not. In other words, the slant in the argumentation is always away from propositions and assertions as if we're embarrassed by them and trying to get as immediately as possible into truth as personal or truth as Christological or something like that, um, as, as if we're, we're embarrassed by anything that, 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 that considers propositions. And I begin to ask myself, could it possibly be that we are not now so much influenced by the Enlightenment as by rebellion against the Enlightenment? that is suspicious against anything about which it can be said, this is true. For example, when the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon's courts, and she looks around at everything, and she says at the end of it, everything that was told me was Emmet in Hebrew, the truth. What she means by that, of course, is that the report conformed to the reality that she witnessed. It's the truth. In other words, reliability, personal reliability, in the domain of assertion or proposition is what we mean today by truth. And there are hundreds and hundreds of utterances in Scripture about matters incidental and important that are of that sort. So it is important not to duck these sorts of issues simply because uh, there is an appeal to um, some sort of paradigm to rule them out of court. Finally, we are ourselves today located in uh, a certain culture. In other words, the surrounding culture of which we are a part, in which we live and move and have our being, has its own impact on our biases. Now, I'm going to raise some of these issues at the epistemological level. That is, uh, how, how, you, uh, how you come to know something in a few minutes. That's a separate point. But let me deal with just one element in our culture now that, that shapes us a great deal, whether we like it or not. That is the changed definition, implicitly or explicitly changed, of what we mean by Tolerance. For quite a long time, most of us in the Western world thought of tolerance very much in the terms of Voltaire. Voltaire is the one of whom uh, it is said that he argued for a vision of tolerance something like this. I may disagree with everything you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That was understood to be tolerant. In other words, Voltaire was not saying that he liked what you said or that he agreed with what you said. He might actually despise what you say. But he's still a tolerant person if he defends your right to say it. That is what guarantees Tolerance. The alternative to that, from Voltaire's position, is intolerance in which those in authority clamp down and wipe off the face of the map those who have a different view, just because you dislike their view. And it is out of such a view of tolerance that you you then generate notions such as freedom of religion or freedom of speech or the freedom of the press. You might think that the press is, is dead wrong on the left or the right, or in its moral assumptions, or in its analyses, or whatever. But if you try to clamp down on the press so that only one view prevails, then sooner or later the corruptions bound up with all of us mean that the issues become bound up with power rather than truth. There is more likelihood of truth being achieved where there is a free interplay of ideas. And that means stupid ideas, ridiculous ideas, corrupt ideas, perverse ideas. But still, all things considered, there's more hope of truth being outed in this free exchange of really stupid and ridiculous ideas than if only one view is allowed to prevail. That was Voltaire's assumption. But for various reasons... The new view of tolerance is a little different. It argues that you are intolerant if you say that anybody else is wrong. You are tolerant if you refuse to say that anybody else is wrong. That's massively different from Voltaire's view. In a poll done a few years ago across many university campuses here in the United States, students were asked which person is more tolerant, person A or person B. Person A is the one who adopts Voltaire's position. I may detest what you're doing and I'll argue very strongly about it, but I will defend to the death your right to speak, as you must defend my right to speak. Or, alternatively, person B, who refuses to say that anybody is wrong except for the person who claims that some people are wrong. That person is so narrow-minded that he must be shut up because he's intolerant. Which person is more tolerant? 85% of the student population in the United States opted for person B. Now, the point is that that second view of tolerance is, in my judgment, both intellectually incoherent and morally perverse. It is intellectually incoherent in that I'm not even sure I know what being tolerant means until you disagree with somebody. In other words, how does a Marxist turn to a capitalist and say, oh, I don't disagree with you. I tolerate you. D- don't you have to say, I think you're dead wrong, but I tolerate you? And the reverse. for a A capitalist speaking to a Marxist or a Christian talking to a a, a Muslim or an atheist talking to a Jew who's devout or whatever. Do do, do you see? Don't you have to begin by saying, "I, I quite frankly think your ideas are nuts, but I insist on your freedom to articulate them. Otherwise, how can you say, if you're an atheist, oh, I think you God people are, 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 uh, well, I can't say you're wrong. It, it's not even intellectually coherent, do you see? That, 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 that is not even an intellectually coherent view. I tolerate you. You can only speak of tolerance once you disagree with someone and still give them the right to speak. But it is morally perverse in that the one place where this new tolerance really does insist that other people are wrong is in their views of tolerance. And at that point, they want to shut them up. Thus, the Canadian Charter has been revised in recent years to say we tolerate everything except intolerance. Oh, it sounds so broad minded, but what this means is that if you start saying, even in cool, Calm terms, let alone with heated hatred. If you start saying something about what you disagree with in the domain of sexuality or in the domain of religion, you could be taken to court for a hate crime because, in fact, you are intolerant. But the end result of that, if you push it far enough, is going to be prison terms for people who disagree with other people. And freedom itself will gradually get snuffed out. Sooner or later, you're going to face a choice between whether you want the kind of freedom that allows for a lot of stupid ideas around but allows them to flourish and be argued out in freedom or the kind of ostensible tolerance which is, in fact, intolerant of everything except the prevailing view established by the positive law of judicial decisions. Now then, the only reason I mention that, it's of of great interest. It's of great interest for all kinds of reasons, and there there are initial rumblings of what's going on in many courts of nations of the Western world. It's of great interest. Yet, 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 the only reason I bring it up here is that with this sort of thing pulsing through our culture, we too are so affected that after a while we get nervous about saying that anybody is wrong. And then even the exclusive claims of Scripture seem to our own eyes slightly embarrassing. It's just too narrow because the exclusive claims of Scripture, implicitly or explicitly, are saying that other people are wrong. And then we carry that bias when we start talking about the truthfulness of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, the the, the faithfulness of Scripture. Well, how can it be? I mean, it's a bit narrow-minded and right-wing, isn't it? And that's also one of the things that stands behind the current drive in some parts of the media and in certain parts of the world of scholarship, too, for insisting that not only the canonical Gospels should be things that we read, but also all the second and third century Gnostic Gospels, did you see? Because initial Christianity, it is argued, was much, much wider. It was more tolerant than the Christianity that's come to us in the Christian Bible with its narrow exclusiveness. Now, that springs, in part, not from a neutral reading of historical evidences. There is no such thing as a neutral reading of historical evidences. We all have slants on things. And this particular slant is coming out of a new postmodern definition of tolerance that affects how we read history, too. Well, that's my survey of some of the conceptions and misconceptions that attends this subject, and so now I come to some popular contemporary treatments. I'm going to spend a bit of time on this. Let me tell you where I'm heading so that you have some idea of uh, where we will end up. In the third place, I will deal with some large-scale epistemological issues, Then in the fourth place, with some bits and bobs from Scripture and Scripture's self-attestation, the kind of evidences that you find in Scripture. In the fifth place, Christ, the center. And then in the last place, I want to talk a bit about the relevance of all of this to our lives. Uh, The the various points will not all receive the same amount of detail. Let me deal now with some popular contemporary treatments. I'm sure that most of us, perhaps all of us, have come across one or all four of the ones that I'll briefly mention. First, the Gospel of Thomas, the Jesus Seminar, and the like. Are you familiar with some of this debate? The the, the so-called Jesus Seminar, on the sort of theological spectrum from sort of conservative to liberal, is so far out on the liberal side that most liberals disown them. In other words, you almost need field glasses to see them. They're so far out on the, on, on the liberal side. But, but nevertheless, they have been hyped quite a bit in the press. Uh, they are the ones that put out um, a, a New Testament with different colored texts for, for, for Jesus' words. And uh, the gray or black has to do with, oh, he didn't say it, or we're pretty sure he didn't say it. Pink is, is, is uh, yeah, he, he, he might have said it. And, 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 and red is, yeah, he certainly did say it. So in the Gospel of Mark, they managed to get one verse that was pink and nothing that was red. That was it. So you must understand that in the whole arena of critical studies, the Jesus Seminar people are are, are a pretty pretty long way out. And they uh, produced one of their first efforts was a book called The Five Gospels. And what they really want out of this. is is, is for Thomas to be included, and you push most of them far enough, they want John excluded, and they want Q to come back in. Q is an ostensible gospel that is made up of the material that uh, overlaps between uh, Matthew and Luke. It is argued that that material once existed as a separate document that is conveniently labeled Q, which is the first letter of the German word, Quelle, source. So, so, so this Q was a separate gospel of argued as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's also the Gospel of Thomas, w- which we've known about for a long time. The Gospel of Thomas is a Coptic document. Almost all scholars date it after 140, some even later than that. A few as early as 120. The Jesus Seminar types want it in the middle or the two-thirds along of the first century, and thus it becomes a source of equivalent significance to, 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 to the synoptic Gospels. But quite apart from the complexities of how you date a document in Coptic in the first or second or third century, there is another matter that is just ignored by them that needs to be thought through. We speak today of our Bibles having the Gospel of Matthew The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. Four Gospels. Nobody in the first century spoke that way. Nobody. In fact, when you read a Greek New Testament, the title of each of these four is in our printed editions. In this sense, they're being faithful to the original Greek of the first century. Matthew is listed as kata mathion, according to Matthew. John is kata yohannin, that is, according to John. Because the four Gospels in the first century were were all headed up, in effect, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and so on. Do you see in other words, it was perceived universally that there was only one gospel. Gospel was not a literary category. It was not a genre category. The gospel was the good news. And it was the good news, the one good news. It was only one gospel, not four. It was the gospel according to Matthew. In other words, Matthew gave his witness to it, his slant, his perspective, and the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to John and the gospel according to Luke and so forth. And then what becomes obvious, just from scanning these four books that we now call Gospels, is that for all of them, the Gospel, the good news, was bound up not only with Jesus' coming and teaching and so on, but with his death and resurrection. Some wag has argued that in some ways the four books that we call the four Gospels are really sort of passion narratives with long introductions. In other words, they're focusing on the death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ, aren't they? In other words, you don't have the gospel, the good news, without Jesus' death and resurrection. You don't have it. Because the good news of the sinners being reconciled to God and sins being paid for and, 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 and hope for what is to come and the promise of the Spirit and so on, it all turns on Christ's death and resurrection, doesn't it? Without that, you don't have the good news. Now you come to Q. Even if it ever existed, I'm not sure, but even if it ever existed, it's not more than a collection of sayings. And you come to the Gospel of Thomas, in fact, it's made up of 114 sayings, two tiny, tiny, tiny half-clauses of alleged historical claim. That's it. There's no death. There's no resurrection. There's no storyline. In any first-century sense, it is not the Gospel, according to Thomas, by the second century, then you are beginning to get the dominant influence of what came to be called Gnosticism, the Gnostic heresy, in which people were saved by gnosis, by knowledge, and the the, the death of and resu- resurrection of Christ were, were, were marginalized. They were set aside. That had very little to do with anything. In fact, the different forms of Gnosticism had different ways of handling it. In in one form, for example, when Jesus cries on the cross, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Well, it's the eternal Son abandoning Jesus who dies on the cross. That doesn't matter because he's he's just he's just a man. The, the eternal Son, the Messiah. He abandons Jesus, and that's why Jesus calls out like that. So the death of, of Jesus is, is irrelevant. The resurrection, whether it took place or not, is irrelevant because the real, the real source of all of this revelation, of all of this teaching, is, is, is bound up with, 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 this, with this person who came on Jesus at his baptism and left him before he actually died. It's the teaching that's important. It's the, no, it's the gnosis. It's the knowledge, do you see? But in the first century, that would be called the gospel. Now, in due course, then, the word gospel was transmuted to refer to those books that tell the gospel. So I don't mind today if people want to speak of the New Testament having four gospels. The problem with it, however, then, is the fact that by the end of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, there were a whole lot of other books that claimed to be gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. And now people are trying to read their material back into the New Testament, when nobody in the first century would have seen them as gospel reports at all. They're abstracted from the heart of the good news. Or how about the Gospel of Judas? Heard about that one? In some ways, that one's more interesting than the Gospel of Thomas. We've had the Gospel of Thomas for a long time. The Gospel of Judas we've known about. Irenaeus refers to it about 180. But we didn't have any copy of it until about uh, uh, 35 years ago. And we've had a copy, but it hasn't been translated into English. So all the hype about it, uh, the scholars have known about the Gospel of Judas in any case for a long time, for several decades, um, and and now it's published in English. And and, and some people are saying, oh, yes, 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 and it's authentic. Uh, What does authentic mean? When the scholars say that this document, the Gospel of Judas, is authentic, they do not mean that it is authentically from Judas I don't know any scholar from anywhere in the theological spectrum who understands authentic to mean that with respect to this document. Rather, they mean it is authentically the so-called Gospel of Judas of which Irenaeus speaks about 180. That is, it is a late second century Gnostic document that was called the Gospel of Judas. We now have a copy of it. The copy itself was from the late 3rd century or early 4th century, and it has now been translated into English. So it's authentically a Gnostic document called the Gospel of Judas that we already knew about from the writings of Irenaeus in 180. But nobody who is a scholar believes that it was written by Judas. So in what sense, then, is this authentically from Judas such that it has the power or the right to overturn what the first century documents that make up the New Testament say about Judas and who he was and so on, so on, so on? You see? The thing has been horribly mangled in the press. And then, of course, I suppose I should say at least a bit of something about the Da Vinci Code. Most of you read it. Have some of you read it? Confession is good for the soul. It won't hurt you. <laughs> yes? Or seen the film? Yeah, not many of you. Yeah, you're, not, you're not much into paganism, are you? <laughs> By all means, read it. As a, as a, read it. Don't duck some of these things. In my view, I read a fair number of mysteries and the like. In my view, it's a, it's a. It's not even a well-written thing. It's too preachy. As a novel, it's just, it's, just, it's, 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 it's trying to convince you all the time of, 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 stuff. And, and so I, I just, I found it pretty boring. In fact, I read it when it first came out and didn't, didn't think that it was, uh, I, I I was surprised that it took on the life that it did. In fact, I threw my copy away after I'd read it. I mean, some who-done-its here. So it's plain reading. When you're taking a four-hour flight from Chicago to L.A., and you land at the other side, and you, you're not going to keep that one in your library. It was one of those? And then when the thing took on a, a life of its own, and I start, had to start giving answers to I had to go and buy myself another copy just so I could <laughs> check out things, do you see? So I'm on my second copy. read it right through this time and marked it all up with rude comments. In it, Jesus marries Mary Magdalene. Their progeny perpetuate the true faith even today. And this true faith is bound up with feminism and fertility cults and the like. At the heart of the argumentation is a discipline that is called symbology, in which symbols show the real heart of the faith and structure of various people across time and space. And pretty soon you're into um, the Knights Templar and uh, the Priory of Zion and secret sexual cultic acts that really come from ancient fertility cults and, and so on. You know, no wonder it's selling. There are a lot of responses now. I will, I will mention some that you can follow at your leisure if this is of interest to you. Uh, there's a book by Witherington, Ben Witherington III, who documents carefully, the documentation is there, more than a hundred historical errors. There's a book by Daryl Bock, and he's gone around the country lecturing on it from time to time, and uh, Bach, Bock, B-O-C-K. Um, there, there is a, an interesting discussion uh, by the chap on Mars Hill Tapes who comments just by the side. It's almost an aside on, on this uh, audio journal, Mars Hill, um, that... that uh, He had read Dan Brown's previous book, Uh, again, an adventure book. I hadn't read it. But but, but, uh, in this previous book, it opens up with a secret agent, a a woman, arriving at uh, NSA headquarters near Baltimore. And it's all described as the wooded slopes of Maryland and and, uh, hidden behind trees so that nobody could see the towers and the high security and she lands at Dulles airport to get there and 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 so on so on so it's all it's all carefully described and um the, the the critic comes along and says, hasn't Dan Brown even had the decency to visit the site Maryland at this point is not wooded you can see all of the towers from the road you you you, 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 you. There are huge signposts announcing you're getting there. It's not some secret backwoods road. And nobody in his right mind would get there by flying into Dulles. That's 37 miles away. They'd go into Baltimore, it's faster. You get there in less than half an hour. Doesn't this guy do anything to check his homework? And so as a result, he starts asking, when the second book came along and I saw how badly it handled the most elementary geographical elements in the first, in areas where you can check them out of the 21st century, how how confident should I be in his handling of sources from the first century? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? And then some of the critics have come down in the whole domain of symbology. There was an essay by Sandra Meisel in uh, the journal Crisis, Uh, really trying to argue against the dangers of endless associative thinking. She draws some parallels. Let's take, she says, the Princess Diana. Well, as every conspiracy theorist knows, Diana was murdered. By whom? Well, think 13. The Mercedes, in which she died, crashed into the 13th pillar of the Pont d'Alma. And this happened on August 31st, which is 13. Backwards. (laughs) Backwards. <laughs> Diana was in her 37th year. Now remember the crucial date, Friday the 13th, 1307. 1307. Transpose a couple of digits and everything is going to be very clear. Die, after all, is named after the moon goddess Diana. Dalma can be understood, if you stretch the French a bit to Old French, as the passage of the moon goddess Who killed her? Well, perhaps it was the Babylonian Brotherhood who offered sacrifices to their lunar and solar pagan deities. After all, they sacrificed JFK, (laughs) their sun god, who died on the anniversary of the papal bull banning the Knights Templar in 1307. And on and on and on. You see? Where do you stop? Where do you stop? And then, of course, there are the anachronisms. Um, Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker writes, The finding of the new gospel no more challenges the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of the American democracy. Or a friend of mine at the University of Aberdeen said on the BBC that um, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, he says, is as authentic as a newly discovered diary of Queen Victoria on a CD discussing the merits of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I mean, (laughs) that's the kind of thing that you're dealing with here. Now, within this framework, then, the more serious criticism of Bart Ehrman has become really quite important in a lot of university circles. He teaches in North Carolina. Amongst his books are The Lost Scriptures, published in 2003, which really produces 47 translations, all known to scholars. I mean, all of us have had to read these things ourselves at one point or another. They're all very well known the law scriptures from 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries, um, um, which he claims represent an earlier expansion of, of Christianity before before the so-called Orthodox One, History is written by the guys who triumph. The Orthodox One, they call themselves Orthodox, and, 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 and so on, and all the others were crushed, it is argued. Likewise, he's written The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, another book misquoting Jesus. Well, if I had more time, I would go into that. Um, if you want to raise... Uh, those issues um, in the Q&A, by all means, do. Once again, there are very, very good uh, essays now out. If you have access to the web and you're interested in the Misquoting Jesus book, look up Dan Wallace. His 30- his, uh, well, or 40-page treatment of Misquoting Jesus is absolutely masterful. And in Books and Culture, if you read that journal, there was uh, an article on Airmen by Robert Gundry that's well worth reading as well. So nowadays there are lots and lots of responses to these things if you know where to look. Third main point, epistemological issues. But instead of diving into it, the four that I have that remain are big issues, but they're not going to take me as much time as the first issues have taken. So let me pause now. We have a break in, uh, in ten minutes or so. Let me pause now for some questions, comments, and personal abuse. I think there's a microphone going around. Is that right? So, so that um, b- before you um, speak, raise your hand and wait till the microphone reaches you so that uh, you are preserved for posterity. There's a microphone on both sides here. Questions, comments? If not, you're going to be stuck with epistemological issues already. I'm more than happy, if you wish, to suspend questions until the second session. I'll deal with epistemological issues before the break. Okay? I just find it uh, very interesting that in the secular media, people such as the man that you just mentioned uh, get all kinds of press coverage. But orthodox people from the evangelical world who can easily refute these people seem to get very little coverage it's almost as if the uh, world is trying to discredit Christianity more and more. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that we can do about that. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Except be courteous and kind and persistent. And, um, uh, but, 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 but there are factors that need to go into that. I mean, if, if you, it's, it's not only that this country um, has, has certain pockets where uh, secularism is particularly pronounced. Pacific Northwest and the New England states and so on. But there are certain societal groupings. By and large, Christianity at the moment, for reasons good, bad, and indifferent, has not penetrated very deeply into university faculty circles, into the media, uh, and into the arts communities. And, um, and, and it's not because it can't. I mean, there are some churches that have made an effort to do so. Tim Keller, Redeemer Press in New York City, has, has, has permeated a long way into all of those areas. But by and large, around the country, that's the case. So that, so that if you're dealing with media people, um, often their only perception of what Christians are is what they see on televangelist programs. Well, that would scare me off too, to be quite frank. And, and, and so, so part of it is our responsibility to make good contacts and to be friends and to know how to talk to people and, 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 and so on. And then every once in a while you, you, you can be asked to, to stick an oar in, um, a few months ago, I was on 2020 and Nightline responding to another one of these that I hadn't, you know. And I was I was in the ABC studios for two hours of detailed taping. By the time I got boiled down, I think I got a total of about five minutes or four minutes on there. N- nevertheless, um, that book has dropped dead in the water. And I've had contacts from all over the country s- saying thank you. So, I mean, sometimes you do get that sort of thing, too, you know? it. And meanwhile, 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 it's really important to see that you don't want to just start playing political games and who's got access and who's got pull. Um, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have him in derision. So it's important It's important to be courteous, to make friends with people. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this after, after the fact. I won't tell you which book it was. People have forgotten it already. It's probably a good thing. But when I was doing one of these things, um, I... I, I befriended the whole the whole crew. I, mean, I went around with the sound man and you know, there was, was a whole crew of, of different people, lights and all this. I got to know them all and chatted them all up and so on. And one of them pulled me aside afterwards and said, you know, when we take the first guy who was pushing this other book hard, he arrived late and he was drunk and he didn't even acknowledge we were here. You care for us, don't you? It's very important not to think polemically all the time. And and, and, uh, and courtesy can and cursing go a long way.
0: Uh, Dr. Carson, um, you made reference to um, the impact of the Enlightenment, and how people have um, sort of uh, rebelled against that and um, taken a position where they're embarrassed by propositional truth. Um, Is there anything, um, not being in that category, I mean being one who's um, concerned about propositional truth, is there anything we need to be on guard against uh, concerning the impact of the Enlightenment? Has it um, influenced us more um, in any area um, and, like, will it prevent us from honoring, honoring God and Christ um, in any of our actions or thinking? Um, do you understand what I'm asking? Um,
1: I said that I would deal more with epistemological issues of that sort okay, in this point next point. point. I, okay. uh, I don't think that Christians should ally themselves wholly with either the Enlightenment or postmodernism. Uh, but on the other hand, there's some things to learn from both, too. But I'll come back to that one.
2: Uh, this is also about the propositional truth and uh, that as sort of a reaction to, oh, yeah, the book you mentioned by John Woodbridge, Woodbridge, Biblical Authority, and the slant of the articles in there towards away from propositional truth towards um, just the Jesus. All we need to do is believe in Jesus, right?
1: Did you say something like that? Uh, well, I, uh, you're probably slightly conflating two things that I said. That is, uh, John Woodbridge's book, Biblical Authority, is really trying to show how this high view of Scripture prevails right across history and isn't the product of 19th century developments or 20th oh, century developments.
2: It's, but it is, is it all true?
1: Yeah. That oh, oh that, that's right. That's another book. It's, yeah, just, it's my notes. True. I'm trying yeah. to understand. Yes, so that, and that, that one's edited by Paget. I didn't mention his name. Okay. And Paget and Kiefert. or Kiefer, I don't even know now how he pronounces his name, Kiefert or Kiefert. but
2: uh And the slant in that book is, you said, towards away from propositional, propositional truth. Propositional truth. truth, that's correct. And, okay. And I it just makes so much sense. Propositional truth is is important and it needs to be embraced and so on. But um how do you avoid uh articulate my question Um, being Gnostic relying on and I think it's a little bit my husband's question last night relying on knowledge to get you to faith when really it's an act of grace and and there's an experiential grace spirit aspect of faith so how do you it's sort of like how do you stand between those two
1: right Um, Well, um, some of the things I I said to your husband last night, I'd I'd want to reiterate, and then a whole lot more if I had more time. That is to say, one has to avoid reductionisms. And um, and that's one of the reasons why I began with God and history. Um, And and by the time I come to the end of this uh, before lunch and start talking about relevance... And the whole business of being reconciled to God and establishing a frame of reference and worldview that looks to eternity and is built on grace and so on. So, some of this will, will I think, get slotted in a little later. But, but in, in the contemporary university world, especially, uh, there is much less hesitation about talking of the commitment inherent in faith than there is of talking about the truth that must be faith's object. So if I'm speaking in a university crowd or to younger people and and so on, that's the side that I have to emphasize today because that's where the problem is. But with respect, you and your husband probably come from a slightly different generation with a different set of problems and challenges and the whole thing. And then the other sorts of things do have to be said as strongly. That is to say, it's not just a question of recognizing that there are propositions. Jesus himself says, I am the truth. That's a personal claim. But at the same time, there is also a component of bending the knee. And even the perception that these things are true, according to a passage like 1 Corinthians 2, is dependent in some way on the Spirit giving us uh, understanding. Now, I'm going to be dealing a bit more with that in epistemology here. And I'll be dealing with it still more uh, this after, at the end of the morning when I, when I talk a bit more about relevance. So I, I I couldn't agree with you more. There is a total package here. but But... But what I tend to emphasize, especially in university campuses today, dealing with people under 30, is, 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 is the connection between the validity of faith and the validity of faith's object. Because that is what is breaking down in our world. Does that scratch where you itch? Yeah? When you were um, talking about the different ways that God discloses Himself, you mentioned uh, the words. I, I'm assuming you are talking about the Bible, and then the sun is another source of disclosure. I mean, for us, you know, now most of our knowledge of the sun comes through the words. It would seem. How is that a useful distinction for us? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> the um, One way of getting at it might be functionally, and then, and then you'll see, I think, what I mean. Um, most devout Muslims, not, not quite all, because there are two passages in the Quran that can be read a couple of different ways uh, on this particular subject, but most Muslims think that Christ didn't die on the cross. That is that he was crucified, but he was taken down um, and then uh, lived uh, in secret uh, amongst his followers uh, to a ripe old age. Um, some believe that he died on the cross, but that um, he, he, he certainly didn't rise from the dead. Uh, now, at this point, Christians and Muslims have competing historical claims. Now, if you take away any notion of history per se, then it's what their scripture says versus what our scripture says. That's all it is. That is, it's their fideistic commitment To um, their scriptures versus our fideistic commitment to our scriptures. Where do you go from there? Is there anywhere to go? Isn't it just a question of whose scripture is right? That's it. But precisely because we're claiming that God has disclosed himself in history, even if that history has been mediated in substantial measure, not quite exclusively, but in substantial measure, through books that constitute our scriptures. Then there are historical canons that you can usefully argue about and think about. The fact of the matter is that our historical scriptures with respect to the death and resurrection of Christ were written in the first century, within decades of the events, most if not all, by eyewitnesses. Their scriptures are written in the seventh century by somebody who's more than half a millennium removed and has no historical access whatsoever. It's a purely fideistic claim. Now, clearly, it's Scripture versus Scripture. That's true. But at a certain historical level, there is open access to historical claims. In other words, even if you are not a believer, even if you're not a committed Christian, even if you don't think that the documents that constitute the New Testament and the Old Testament constitute canonical Scripture that is binding on the consciences of men and women, even if you don't think of all of that, Nevertheless, just at the raw level of history, who has a better claim to attesting the death of Christ? And, and so, um, although there is a sense in which, in which these things do revert at some level merely to Scripture, it really is important to keep mentioning the historical dimensions, precisely so that this does not um, retreat too fast into a purely fideistic debate my faith versus your faith and what do you go from there testing
0: all right good stuff there from uh, Dr Carson need to remind you all fighting for the faith is listener supported radio if you haven't joined our crew yet please uh, please do so this is kind of an important thing we need to pay our bills you can uh, Join our crew by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see a yellow button there that says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're setting up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month of Fighting for the Faith. And that makes it possible for us to uh, meet our budget every month so that we can continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can also, uh, if you want to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you would like to uh, contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to... Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.